welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, I've got a few things in store for you. First, Keynote 48. I put it off last week. And I'm going to tackle it this week, although I'm still not, I'm still not at the bottom of it. It is a big, confusing mess, but I know enough to know what my takeaway is. Uh, next, I have a discussion on more careerism, and I didn't, I didn't want to do it, but somebody had to tweet something, and so it requires, it requires a bit of commentary. And then, finally, I'm with Bashal Gaywali talking about his new paper out this week, in Nature Cancer. You won't want to miss this discussion on global oncology. And I myself am out of the office. I should be in Berlin by the time you're listening to this. So, wish me safe travels. I'll be back next week in the studio. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. Keynote 48. This paper came out at the fall of last year, October 31st, 2019. Pembrolizumab alone or with chemotherapy versus cetuximab with chemotherapy for recurrent or metastatic squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck. HNSCC. Keynote 48, randomized open-label phase three study by Burtness and colleagues. And what is the first thing I'm going to point out? Acknowledgements. This study was funded by Merck. And we want to thank blah, 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 and Melanie, blah, 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 for medical writing and editorial assistance. Thank you. Like all great pieces of scholarship, we thank the medical writer for drafting it and editorial assistance. Must be nice, of course, to work in a field where it is considered acceptable to have somebody draft uh, what you yourself are using for academic promotion and scholarship. It's quite unique to me. I don't see it in other fields. I don't see history teachers getting um, a medical writer to draft their books or uh, English professors having it for novels. Uh, but who knows? Maybe this is the new standard. Maybe students should also be able to hire medical writers because if faculty can do it, why not students? There's no ethical qualms about having somebody draft something that you yourself put your first name on, which I thought was a fundamental bedrock principle of academics, but apparently it is not. This is a randomized control trial of Pembro alone versus the extreme regimen with Cetux or chemotherapy or Pembro chemo versus Cetux chemo. Uh, so it's got many, many hypotheses to test. Um, we all know a little bit of background that Cetux chemo uh, gained prominence due to the extreme regimen, which was a randomized controlled trial of chemotherapy plus cetuximab versus chemotherapy alone, showed a modest overall survival advantage. Um, but many of us who've practiced in the head and neck cancer space, we know that that is really a regimen uh, that is not suited for everybody. It's suited for really exceptionally exceptional patients who are 
ultra fit. Um, and those are the people you think about the extreme regimen. Um, but in other patients, you might be satisfied to just give them platinum-based chemotherapy and, and to hold off on the cetuximab, save it for second-line therapy. And in fact, the up-to-date recommendations, as in recently as a week ago, recommend uh, that it is okay to give uh, chemo first, then cetuximab, rather than the combination, because the trial uh, extreme was never really designed um, to test the sequence versus the upfront administration of all the agents. And thus, it's very possible that the sequence has the same OS. And that, of course, is a, is a failure of the, the earlier study, and a failure that's quite relevant to the Keynote 48 trial. Now, what do you need to know about Keynote 48 trial? Well, good thing the primary endpoint changed. The initial primary endpoint of the study was progression-free survival, which is a total failure in this study. So good thing they changed it to OS without looking at the data one bit, without looking at the data is what they say in their statement. The final protocol, which includes a full list of exploratory endpoints and the original protocol are available in the appendix, pages 38 to 387. Wow, thank you. And a summary of all endpoint changes, 35 to 37. Notably, the overall survival was a secondary endpoint in the original protocol, but in light of increasing evidence that progression-free survival is a poor surrogate of overall survival for immunotherapy, overall survival was promoted to a primary endpoint. This change was made before any data analyses, of course. Before we analyzed the data, we made the change. But was it made before you looked at the data? Before you got any inkling about the data? Who knows? I should state so upfront. So what did they go with? They went with six primary endpoints of the study. Okay. Pembro monotherapy versus the extreme regimen. PFS superiority in the CPS 20 or more group. Pembro monotherapy versus Cetux chemotherapy. OS, superiority in the CPS20 group. Pembrochemo versus Cetuxchemo, OS superiority in the CPS20 group. Pembrochemo versus Cetuxchemo, PFS superiority in the CPS20 group. There's primary endpoint is non-inferiority in the total population and superiority for PFS in the total population, non-inferiority for OS. These were the six primary endpoints. And there's a hierarchical testing model so that if you met superiority CPS20 or more for Pembrochemo versus Chemo, Cetux, um, you were able to test superiority in the one plus, then non-inferiority in the whole group, then superiority in the whole group. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. What did they end up finding? Well, for the most part, it looked like PFS was a total wash in this group. This is a regimen that did not appear to improve progression-free survival, but they were able to win some of the OS analyses. So here's what they found. At the second interim analysis, Pembro alone improved OS versus cetuxin chemo in the CPS 20 or more, and in the one or more, uh, and then Pembro alone versus extreme regimen was non-inferior in the overall population, although that non-inferiority bound they're willing to accept is 1.2, which is quite permissive, although they achieved a 1.03. Pembro plus chemo improved OS in the whole group at the second interim analysis, but at final analysis only in the CPS 20 or more and the one or more group. Wow, I keep reading this, and it's just a total, total mess. I keep getting confused as to when they showed what, because there's a, center, there's a second interim analysis, there's a final analysis. Uh, they consider the definitive results if they meet statistical significance at the second interim analysis, even if that may not be preserved in the final analysis. They have six primary endpoints, a slew of secondary endpoints, and a sea of hierarchical testing. It is a very difficult to keep track of all these endpoints. But I don't think you really need to keep track of too much. Uh, because the real question here, the real question, however, is, is getting Pembro chemo and then salvage chemo and then cetuximab, which presumably is the intervention arm, better 
then getting Cetux chemo, and then Pembro, and then salvage chemo, which is what we would do outside for the patients this fit outside of this study. And the answer is, we don't know at all. In the final analysis, the use of subsequent PD-1 or PD-L1 therapy in the cetuximab chemotherapy group is just one in four, a quarter of all patients who are assigned to this arm. That is lousy. That is super low and not consistent with U.S. standards of care. They write that other limitations are the inconsistent access to second-line PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors across the countries. See, that's how they bungled this whole thing. They have shifted the primary endpoint to overall survival, which is the right primary endpoint. But you want to ask the question, is giving upfront Pembro plus chemo superior to what we were doing a minute before this study was came out? A minute before this study came out in the United States, which is we would give Cetux chemo upfront or chemo upfront and then Pembro as a second line agent. But you're only giving Pembro as a second line agent to one in four patients on this study because you're enrolling in countries where you don't have access to Pembrolizumab. And as such, all of your findings don't really tell me whether or not the sequence is better or the upfront use is better. It tells me getting some Pembro sometime is better than probably never getting Pembro at all. But that's not, that's not very a useful question. The next thing they entirely bungle is I don't want to know if you have superiority in CPS over 20 and then over one and then all comers. I want to know over 20, one to 20, and then less than one or even better, over 20, 10 to 20, one to 10 or five to 10 and then one to five. You know, where is it that there's a tipping point? And I did a little back of the envelope calculation based on some of the Kaplan-Meier curves which initially look at the over 20 CPS score. I looked at how many people alive and dead at 24 months in the OS for CPS 20 group, and it looked like 35% and 19. And then I looked at it in the over one CPS 1% or higher, and it was 29 and 17. And then I tried to mathematically construct what happened to the 1 to 19, you know, so removing the people who are over 20. And the 1 to 19, it would look like 22% and 15%. And I guess my question here is that, you know, I don't think there's enough data given in this paper that I can analyze it real clearly, but I want to know the Kaplan-Meier curves at every different cutoff. So over 20, 15 to 20, 10 to 15, uh, 5 to 10, 1 to 5, because it's very likely that somewhere along that spectrum, it actually tips and cetuximab chemotherapy may even be superior uh, to pembrolizumab. And again, you know, all of this is kind of secondary because if you're not giving pembrolizumab as a second-line therapy in this trial, I just don't think it's useful at all, period, end of story. It's not useful. We were giving, based on FDA drug approval and prior randomized controlled trials, pembrolizumab was the standard of care second-line drug in this space. And here, you've run a trial where you try to move it to the front line and you're not giving it on the back end. Okay, Keynote 48 continued. Boy, I spent a lot of time trying to dig to see the timeline here. Of course, Keynote 48 started enrolling in April 2015, but in 2016, the company secured approval for pembrolizumab in recurrent head and exquamous cancer. It's an accelerated approval based on Keynote 12. The authors knew in 2016 that there was activity from pembrolizumab and headache cancer, and it received the accelerated approval that year. But that trial enrolled patients as early as 2013, and so they had obviously known that the drug is active in this disease. And in 2016, of course, nivolumab showed overall survival benefit in a randomized control trial in the second-line setting of head and neck cancer. What's my point? My point is, even if you're willing to forgive the authors in the first year that they're enrolling patients that they're not 
having patients adequately be treated with PD-1 inhibitors on the back end. Uh, in year two and year three of uh, enrollment on Keynote 48, they really ought to uh, increase uh, dramatically the percentage of patients who are treated with second-line PD-1 drugs, especially after nivolumab has proven a survival benefit in that latter setting. Um, and really, you know, the company knows this. They know this all along. They know the drug is active in this disease, that the cleanest path to approval is an OS benefit in a randomized control trial in the second-line setting. They should do that first. Then they should try to march up the drug and to see whether or not the routine upfront administration is better than the sequence. That's just a simple strategy of drug development. And if you want to read more about that, you should check out Malignant, how bad policy and bad evidence harm people with cancer. Coming soon. Coming soon. Well, in short... Keynote 48, my overall takeaway point is I uh, am not sure, based on this study, that if you currently give somebody Extreme and then Pembro or, ne or Nevo as second-line therapy, that you do them any favors by giving them Pembro and Chemo upfront. Um, I'm not sure that they are better off as a result from that. And that's really the question that I have uh, in 2019 when this paper is published. And the second question is, is um, even if there were to be a benefit from the routine upfront use of Pembro versus the sequence, uh, does that vary depending on your CPS score? And I think we need a whole lot more data and more analyses uh, to kind of figure that out. So in short, kind of shrug my shoulders at this trial, very complicated study, very difficult to read. As I was even recording, I found myself... Uh, checking the paper over and over and over again, trying to figure out what exactly they're talking about, the primary analysis, the secondary analysis, the final analysis, CPS over 20, over 1, uh, all intention to treat population, PFS, OS, Pembro versus Extreme, and Pembro Chemo versus Extreme. Wow, there are a lot of comparisons here. And uh, somebody came in and interrupted me in the recording, uh, and this person said that this is just the way Merck likes to do it. Merck likes to, they love the hierarchical testing, and they love not telling you how people with zero did and how people with just one to 19 did. And I kind of chuckled at that because it seems to be the case. So Keynote 48, I would say, uh, it doesn't really tackle the clinical question we're facing today. More information is needed. So... On that positive note, we will turn to the next segment. Somebody directed this my way, and this is a thread that appeared on Twitter about um, tips on how to, to publish. And, uh, you know, I think they sent it my way because they know I've been talking about careerism and this was going to... This was going to get under my skin. Um, so, you know, it has a bunch of slides. It says things like, why is it important to publish? It's an underlying expectation of academia. Promotions increases your depth and breadth as a clinician. Publishing is academic currency. Uh, I would say I disagree with all of those things. Those are not, I don't see a single reason why you would publish. You publish because um, you have uh, observed something about the world uh, or had a question about the world. Um, you sought to describe that phenomenon or address that question, perhaps not answering it fully. Um, in the course of your investigation, you uh, examined data that has never been um, uh, examined as such or never been presented as such, um, and you felt as if it was worth it uh, to write up uh, that observation because that would be important for other people to know. That's the only, that's the only reason to publish, is that the information that you've stumbled across um, that you have gathered and collated and analyzed um, is something that you think is worth it for other people to know. It's certainly not for, for your career. 
the next uh, next part of this was what is academic currency? Uh, it can be divided into gold, silver, and bronze. Uh, bronze, of course, podcasts, blogs, and social media. Oh, that stings a little bit here on plenary session. <laughs> no, I would say, uh, let's be honest, podcasts, blogs, and social media, it's not even bronze. It's uh, it's not a precious metal at all. It's a, It has no, there is no academic currency for doing any of this stuff. Uh, no one is going to get promoted over this stuff, at least not anytime soon. Um, and um, I think, uh, uh, you know, insofar as this is educational and valuable, it's a form of disseminating, I think. Uh, but uh, you know, I think it's a, it's an uphill battle before anyone would really consider that a bronze. What's gold in this picture? Um, grants and original research publications. Um, I guess I would say then I would make platinum. Grants is platinum, and original research publications uh, is gold. Uh, grants is what it's all about. Uh, that's the real academic currency. Original research publications, maybe that's what, what actually matters, uh, especially if it's telling something useful about the world. Um, and then the silver category was comments, perspectives, reviews, case series, reports, editor, editorials, and letters to the editor. Um, okay. Um, and I think this thread is supposed to be an endorsement to do more of that silver stuff, which I don't think should be pursued for the sake of pursuing it in, in any way, shape, or form. Um, the secret sauce to productivity is turn what you do well into a tangible product. Case reports, medical imaging, letter to the editor, op-ed. Okay, op-ed has no value. I mean, no one's going to look at that on a CV and give you any credit for that. Um, why are these low-hanging fruit? They're short, 200 to 1,500 words. That's true. Little to no research required, but background knowledge and insight is needed. Yeah, I guess I would say here's another source of disagreement. Uh, you know, if you think writing a perspective is um, easier than writing an original article, um, you, uh, um, I don't think we have the same the same conception of it. Um I was just talking to a colleague this morning with whom I've written many uh, perspective-like pieces, and, and this colleague was saying that, you know, sometimes we spend six months or a year uh, discussing something uh, before we decide to write it up. And the amount of mental energy that has gone into it, um, that idea, that concept before we decided to write it up, um, rivals even an original publication. And especially when you do policy, you know, so many times people present fundamental policy findings in terms of perspectives. And... I think it's demeaning to say that that's sort of some quick thing that you can just write. You could do that, I think, but you will never be published by anybody anybody worth publishing in, which is a place that people read. Um, because I think publishing a perspective that no one reads is like um, uh, is like if a tree falls in a forest and it and uh, no one's around to hear the sound. Does it even make a sound? Well, who cares? Letter to the editor. Uh, timely, right within one month, insightful as to the conversation, think of it as an extension of the discussion. Um, I guess I would say, you know, you should only write a letter to the editor if you uh, have a point to make that, uh, you know, is very important, or if you have some request for information and clarifications, that's one of the few opportunities you have to really um, cajole the authors to providing that information. Editorials. Get your foot in the door. Be a reviewer. Offer to write an editorial for any article you feel has a high likelihood of being published. See, I also disagree with this a little bit. Um, you should never write an editorial just to write an editorial. If you don't have anything uh, really clever or thoughtful to say, you shouldn't write the editorial. Um, you want to read an editorial that just shouldn't have been written? Read the editorials of the Nelson trial. Uh, it's a totally thoughtless editorial that just cheerleads and says, we need to screen everybody now right away because this was a successful trial. Uh, it's been mocked online already. Chadi Nabhan uh, mocked it uh, uh, profusely and 
And I said, it's, it's not even worth reading. And, you know, somebody may put on their CV, they have a New England Journal editorial, but um, people who've read that editorial will give them no credit for having written that. It has not even one ounce of intellectual thought was placed into such an editorial. It's recapitulating things um, that uh, that were already touted by the primary study author and which uh, are probably not a fair representation of that study. Case reports. I think case reports, uh, you know, they should almost never be written. Um, they should only be written if what the case you've seen is something that is um, super interesting and further sort of knowledge in a broad way. Uh, and then when you do do it, you should do a lit review and it should make everything a case series to see uh, can you make a unifying theme there. And if you really have a good case report, then you should really consider pairing up with somebody who does molecular science to see if you can actually quantify something molecularly to help explain the pathophysiology or, or the, the sort of um, pathobiology of, of what you identified. Clinical images. I guess if you come across a good image, you can write it, but I certainly wouldn't write it for the sake of writing it. Um, op-ed, um, usually from someone with an expertise in the field. I think op-eds have been... Uh, I think people will find them very disappointing to pursue. Um, I've written, you know, maybe five or six op-eds in the New York Times and the Washington Post and some other places. And I think you, you will struggle deeply to try to say what you want to say and have the editorial guidance not uh, oversimplify, distort, or tone it down. Um, and then when you do publish, you'll get, you know, people will read it, uh, and then they'll quickly ignore it. And if you really want to talk about something funny about op-eds... Um, you know, I wrote that op-ed a few years ago in the Washington Post called Why a Moonshot Won't Cure Cancer. And I talked about then uh, Vice President Joe Biden's suggestion for a moonshot to cure cancer. I said, you know, there are a few things wrong with this. Um, you're not going to get really transformative drugs by reforming the FDA. R reforming the FDA and thinking you'll get better drugs is like buying a new stopwatch and thinking you'll run a faster mile. Um, there were some other things he said, I think, about real-world data or things like that that uh, I thought were neither here nor there. And then the final thing I said in this is that, you know, Science is serendipitous. Nobody knows where discoveries come from. To really um, have sustained scientific advancement, you have to fund blue sky science in a very broad way, not knowing what might yield results many years later, um, that science proceeds in fits and starts, that it's not like an engineering problem. It's not like uh, putting a man on the moon. And uh, and just to tell you sort of how short memories are, uh, then last week, Bill Kalin, the Nobel laureate, writes an article called uh, Why a Moonshot Won't Cure Cancer, also in the Washington Post, very similar title and very similar argument where he says that, you know, we don't know what's going to succeed or fail. I did my work and I wasn't really thinking about cancer medicine. I was thinking about anemia and look how it had implications for for many diverse fields and we need to fund blue sky science broadly and not make people have deliverables. I said, you know, that's exactly what was said uh, under the same headline a few years ago. Um, what I found was really funny was that the same people who complained about my editorial uh, now are happily retweeting it when a Nobel laureate says it. So I guess it does depend on who says it. Um, but um, I guess the reason I bring it up here is that, you know, uh, op-eds, uh, people have a short memory and uh, it's, it's something that I would... I would, uh, having done it a few times and, and seen how, you know, you don't always get to say what you want to say, uh, I don't know how, how I, if I would ever endorse it. And I certainly don't think that it gets you any academic uh, credibility if that's what you sought, which is not what you should be doing for any of these things. Um, final comment here is I think that, you know, I think that reason why somebody sent me this thread was because it, it really is an exemplary example of kind of what I'm talking about, which is... We have forgotten that, um, you know, you, you don't write papers to get promoted um, and you don't 
write papers because that's part of what it means to be in the academy, if you don't have ideas or concepts or projects or issues that compel you to write papers, um, then maybe you don't want to be in the academy. And uh, and somebody I admire was sort of commented about this thread um, in private that the article should just say, get a new job. Uh, and I think it's a joke, but I think it's sort of a true joke, which is that, you know, you can't you can't do the job because you just want to check the boxes off the list and write the perspectives and the editorials. Um, you can't sit around and say, I want to write an editorial. What should I write it on? I mean, you have to engage in the substance and the topics and the discipline and the, and the information and then discuss it and care about it and think about it. And then think um, when you find something or realize something or articulate something, what's the best way to convey this if it, you feel it in fact is worth conveying? And if you're doing these things so you can stay in academics, that's the entirely wrong reason to do it. It's because you do those things, you feel compelled to be in academics. That's the right way to look at it. Um, because it really is not worth it if you're looking around and saying, I just need to do something to fit in here. Um, maybe the right answer is, you know, get another job, get a new job, get a job where you don't feel compelled to do things that are irrelevant to what you actually are interested in or care about it. Um, it shouldn't be like twisting your arm. Um, I'm trying to think about, I was just thinking about it. I mean, just in the last few days, I had this idea that I emailed somebody I work with over the weekend um, you know, said so I read this and and I read this and I'd read it a few months ago and then I saw this other piece of information that came out and you know what if you connect these two dots in this way, uh, wouldn't it make this point? And this person said, let's discuss it in the office. And then we talked about it all morning. And then this person said, you know, let me do some more research. And then this person did some research and came back and argued with me in the afternoon uh, in a very productive way, pushing back on some of these things. We talked about it a little bit more. And finally, we came to some mutual understanding. We thought it was actually quite interesting. And we thought, like, this would be actually really good to write up, maybe as a thousand-word commentary to make this point, which I don't think a lot of people would appreciate. Um, but it all started because of something I read uh, that led to the sort of discussion and this process, not that we set out to write a thousand-word commentary, which is really pointless. Um, and similarly, you know, to write case reports for the sake of writing case reports or editorials for the sake of writing editorials, I mean, I guess part of what I would say is, um, you know, we force students to do that because we do a lousy job of taking the time to um, figure out what it is we want from trainees and how to prioritize um, the recruitment of those trainees. Uh, and so we just use these easy-to-measure surrogates, like how many papers they published. And so, of course, they pursue review articles and case reports that are really read by nobody and have no real contribution to the literature. And part of me thinks that that's terrible and bad. And, and don't you want to reach a day in your life where if it's not what you really want to do, you don't have to do it and you don't do it? And I think that's the takeaway about academic careerism. It's, it just makes no sense to me. And that's why this wise person writes the article should just say get a new job, which is right, which is that it sounds like you don't want to do the job and, and, and you can't do it just for the sake of checking off the boxes, especially if you're a clinician. You can just see patients. It's actually deeply fulfilling. It's a very deeply fulfilling thing to do. Well, on that positive note, we will turn to our interview with Bishal Gaywali. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Bishal Gaywali. Dr. Gaywali is an author of a new paper out in Nature Cancer. It's entitled Challenges and Opportunities for Cancer Clinical Trials in Low- and Middle-Income Countries. Bishal, it's good to see you again. Uh, good to see you too. And uh, finally, you got my last name 
correct. Uh, finally, yeah. I pronounced it correct? Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying. I've been practicing. <laughs> so now you're a frequent guest on Plenary Session. You've been here now, what, three times, four times? Uh, this should be my fourth time. Yeah. Fourth time. The four peak. <laughs> You're competing with Adam Obley. We got to get you a jacket for this. <laughs> yeah, and and actually we have been recording in uh, different places. That's My first recording was while I was in Oregon. That's true. A second and one was uh, in the in the yacht club, Chris Booth's yacht yeah. club. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah, the last yeah. two have been via Skype. Yeah. So I had the chance to read this paper. It's very interesting. Um, uh-huh. I had some questions for you, but I wanted to start uh-huh. with something you wrote at the end. Uh, you uh-huh. write. Not long ago, the debate around cancer in low- and middle-income countries was whether to treat cancer, not how to treat it. So how has the dialogue changed over the last decade or so in in low- and middle-income countries? Uh, Yeah, you know, like, uh, I think uh, this started at the time of HIV-AIDS when people were questioning whether or not to treat rather than how to treat. And similar philosophy we uh, heard in cancer in... uh, I think uh, I have a reference for that quotation hmm. in my paper. Uh, in that paper, as you can see, like people were uh, even discussing about whether or not to treat cancer uh, rather than how to treat cancer. Uh, because uh, the argument uh, was the low and middle income countries uh, did not have enough resources to, to take care of the growing cancer problem. And uh, there were other important priorities uh, for them. Uh, so. Uh, at least now we are at a position where we are not having that discussion anymore mm-hmm. uh, whether or not to treat cancer in low and middle-income countries. So that, that, that's, a, that's a good sign. Uh, but now we wanted to uh, improve that discussion from how to treat cancer to how to uh, invest in clinical trials, how to do clinical trials in low and middle-income countries. I see. And that's really the subject of this commentary. So. This was. This is for a new journal. Uh, Nature Cancer is relatively the new kid on the block. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it's true. And uh, I was actually very happy uh, because uh, if 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 you look at the Nature journals, uh, then uh, usually I guess this was on social media when they released their first issue, uh, in which they had a, they had uh, one article about uh, people's vision for the next decade. For, for cancer research and and how how what what excites top people in in, in in cancer research about what's going to transform cancer medicine uh, for the next decade and uh-huh. there were there were all uh, talking about basic science research uh, and some and some people were uh, understandably unhappy about it because nobody was talking about uh, how we can uh, change cancer in the next decade by uh, cancer policy by implementing the things that we know work uh, and by having people uh, access to cancer care uh, equitably all over the world. Mm-hmm. Nobody was talking about these mm-hmm. issues. So actually, uh, Nature Cancer and its release of first issue, I guess they also got some criticism from the social media about uh, you guys are not, you guys are ignoring uh, global oncology, you guys are ignoring cancer policy and stuff like that. So I was very happy that uh, Nature Cancer accepted our piece, uh, and this is not the usual piece you would see in a Nature Journal. Right. So I was very happy to to uh, 
understand that Nessa Cancer is a new journal that is actually interested in these issues and it gives us a new platform to, to voice these concerns. And I'll have to say this, I had a fantastic experience working with uh, the editor-in-chief of the journal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, and uh, all the comments and feedbacks that I received from uh, her during the process of edit uh, uh, and, and, and revising of our manuscript, they were, they were, they were fantastic. So I have only very good things to say about the journal and the editor-in-chief. I was very much impressed. Let me ask you this question. If, if I had $50 billion and I would give it to you, and I mm-hmm. said, you have to take these $50 billion and save as many life years from cancer as you can with $50 billion. Um, mm-hmm. so, so imagine I'm like a, a Bill Gates type figure. I give you $50 billion. <laughs> I want to maximize the impact of this $50 billion on life years. Would you invest that $50 billion in laboratory drug discovery uh, for new uh, cancer medicines? Or would you uh, invest that $50 billion in taking the discoveries of prior eras and implementing it in low- and middle-income countries? Uh, that's, that's a no-brainer for me, as I have always been advocating for cancer ground shot, and what you describe is a perfect description of cancer ground shot versus cancer moonshot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think the, the maximal... Uh, savings in terms of uh, saving cancer lives, uh, saving lives due to cancer deaths can be achieved by implementing things that we already know to work, but we haven't been able to implement it uh, in, a, in a right way, in an equitable way uh, across the world. So mm. people are still dying because they don't have access to surgery and radiotherapy, uh, interventions that can cure cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, uh, I, I, I think uh, it's, it's a no-brainer that uh, we'd be able to save much more lives by uh, by achieving the achievable, by by implementing the things that we already know to work, but we haven't been able to implement them uh, successfully. Uh, so, uh, you know, new discoveries, new inventions, they do have a role, and, and I don't mean to discount that, but if we are not able to uh, make people benefit from the, from the inventions that we have had for the last so many years, then, then uh, there is. Then what, what's the point in having a new invention? Right. I guess I would say. I mean, I, I also see it sort of as a no-brainer. I think if anything, it would be ten to a hundred times more return uh, by making sh- taking what we have that we know to work and implementing it universally. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And if I were dividing this fifty billion, maybe I would say five billion for sort of blue sky science and translational mm-hmm. science, and forty-five billion for implementing what we know, so that you know the pipeline doesn't shut down. But I guess I would mm-hmm. struggle to sort of divide in any different ratio than that. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I'm curious if anyone listens to this podcast and wants to come on. And make the case why they think, um, you know, 45 billion should go the other way, should go towards science discovery and 5 billion should go to implementation. I'm curious Uh to hear that person's point of view because I just can't even wrap my mind around it. So I kind of want that voice to me because I'm so much in agreement with you on this issue. Um, Uh Go ahead. Yeah. And and, uh, I guess uh, the the other example, the other very good example for making the same argument would be... uh, and this is an example that we discuss in in a little detail in our paper is doing clinical trial of new drugs yeah. in low and middle income countries. Yeah. So the the ethics of that, and yeah. uh, I know that you have also written a paper on that in Journal of Global Oncology a couple of years ago, which mm-hmm. I had read and was absolutely impressed with. Uh, you know, like we are doing trials of new molecules in low income countries, and the whole purpose of doing the trial is to gain approval. Back in rich home, countries, back, yeah, back, exactly. Back in US and yeah, Europe. Yep. And 
for now, let's assume that that drug is a wonderful drug that yes. improves overall survival tremendously. So what happens after the trial is closed is that people in those low-income countries who are participants, the uh, the public of that low-income country, they no longer has access exactly. to the drug. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, so what's the whole point? Yeah. I, uh, so how can, how can it be ethical if you you do a you do a trial of a drug in a population that will no longer have access to the drug once the drug is proven to be effective? Yeah, I mean the way I can sometimes see these that 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 dilemma is that you know you're running a trial in a low and middle income country where after progression. Um, Patients on the trial may not get the standard of care in the U.S. or U.K., so one may wonder whether or not the drug would have improved survival in the U.S. So to that respect, the trial doesn't really answer the question, does this drug improve survival in the U.S. or the U.K. or Canada? And at the same time, the trial doesn't help people in that nation because the moment the trial ends, as you say, uh, the sponsor walks out of the country and they don't have access to the medication because they can't afford the medication. So exactly. who is the trial helping? I struggle with, yeah. yeah. And how is that ethical? I, yeah, as you know, that's a... I think that's a good a good example. And you used a really good one in your paper. Um, I believe it was uh, seritinib versus chemotherapy. Is that it? Yeah, yeah, SN4, yeah. And this was done in an age of time when um, we had... was already approved. Exactly, yes. Yeah, and, so, yeah. So, so basically, uh, I, I felt bad that, you know, the first ethical principle of a trial is uh, the participants should not be harmed as a result of participating in the trial, right? Yeah. So my, uh, I think that in this trial, uh, the participants, if they had not participated in the trial, then they would have received crizotinib by default mm -hmm. as, as a routine clinical practice. Mm -hmm. But because they participated in the trial, the control arm patients were denied crizotinib mm -hmm. and they had to get uh, chemotherapy. Yes. And... Um... And that to me is a, is very troublesome. And you, I don't think you could have done such a trial if you heavily enrolled in the United States. I think providers would not have allowed it. So it's yeah. a, it's sort of this mixed up trial. But there are a couple. So, of, so, yeah. So so it's no brainer that uh, this trial was conducted. Uh, the the trial population was heavily from low and middle income countries and not from high income countries. But uh, as we discussed, the the ethical issue was what happened after the trial finished. Yeah. Uh, people are still uh, people can't afford crizotinib in low and middle income countries. Yeah. Now, I wanted to talk to you about a couple of other excellent points that you make in this commentary. So one is this, um, that clinical trialists in low and middle income countries have run pragmatic, locally adapted clinical trials. And you talk about a trial of arsenic in the local regional treatment of liver cancer, um, uh, perioperative injection of progesterone in operable breast cancer, um, and, and the question of who should get node dissection. So, so tell me, um, you know, maybe summarize these trials. Why are these trials so, so really well done and so useful? Uh Okay, there may be some, some methodological issues with the trial. I, I'm not making a point that this trial are really wonderful. Uh, but the point I'm making is, uh, you know, a, a lot of the trials that we are doing in high-income countries, right. they also have so many methodological shortcomings. Sure. Uh, but uh, I guess it's the not invented here syndrome that mm. we have in high-income countries that we, we uh, look at the trials that are done in low- and middle-income countries, and then we say, like, we, we, we turn a deep air to that. Yeah, even if it, we the, dismiss the trial, it, yeah. Yeah, even if the trial was uh, done properly or even if the trial was answering important clinical questions, we just don't bother about it. Mm -hmm. 
and 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 that's that's uh, I I guess unacceptable to me because if you have some important methodological concerns, then you have to raise that issue and maybe try to solve that methodological concerns uh, in a uh, in a, in a trial that you would have done properly. Let's yeah. say, for yeah. example. But to just dismiss the trial, to just say that, oh, this is not applicable in high-income countries, or to just say that, oh, uh, I don't know how this saw this benefit in low-income and countries, this will not be applied to our case, uh, to just dismiss the trial, uh, uh, I, I guess it's... it's uh, uh, not justified even to the patients in in high income countries because the patients in high income countries should also be able to reap the benefits of the trials that are ongoing in low and middle income countries if it is if it is applicable to them so if this single dose of uh, progesterone mm-hmm. if one single dose of progesterone is really that beneficial then 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 we should do this a either we should say that uh, this trial was flawed if not we should implement that or a middle way, let's do the same trial in high-income countries and let's see if we can replicate uh, those results. And and if we could, then that would be a, a huge, uh, you know, cost-effective uh, intervention to to uh, patients anywhere in the world. Uh, and the other interesting thing yeah. uh, was, okay, let's say a, a, a more recent example in in EGFR mutation positive lung cancer. Yeah. We're talking about osimertinib here. Yeah. But uh, there was a trial recently that came from India where they saw that using gefitinib plus chemotherapy together yeah. also uh, helped to... PFS uh, benefit over gefitinib yeah. alone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so both these trials, this is osimertinib versus uh, uh, EGFR TKI first generation and the other one is uh, gefitinib plus chemotherapy versus uh, gefitinib alone. Uh, but as as you can see, the enthusiasm for osipentinib is so high in high income countries. But there is no enthusiasm for gefitinib plus chemotherapy. I, I think uh, what you're what you're articulating yeah. is we are happy to embrace trials that enroll and run in low and middle income countries if the first and last author are in high income countries and the trial is sponsored by the pharmaceutical industry. But if the first and last author are from those low in, low and middle income countries, then we're quick to dismiss it by saying yeah. something like that trial doesn't apply to people in our country. Exactly. Uh, and and so you view this as a form of maybe even a subtle form of discrimination against uh, against low and middle in middle income countries. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and this is also a discrimination between pharma-sponsored mm-hmm, intervention mm-hmm. versus non-pharma-sponsored intervention. Right. Because the trials that uh, we're talking about are like either trials of very cheap drugs like arsenic or, or a single dose of progesterone, or it's about doing or not doing surgery, resecting or not resecting uh, lymph nodes of the primary tumor in case of metastasis. So, uh, you know, there is there is uh, nothing to gain for, for any... Uh, for-profit uh, industry here. Right. Now, that's well put. I think that those are all part of why some low- and middle-income trials are accepted uncritically and others are, are doubted uh, even without a close examination. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Because we also saw a trial of uh, Watson for oncology that came from India. Yeah, of that course. was the first trial of uh, artificial intelligence in oncology that came from India. But uh, like uh, I have seen uh, people present about that trial in, in many high-income uh, conferences uh, mm-hmm. in high-income countries. Uh, but uh, people don't do the same for those other trials that we discuss about. So what do you view as the solutions to these dilemmas? I mean, you talk a little bit about it in the paper. You talk about opportunities mm-hmm. for co-development, how, I mean, you're important. I think the key point of your paper isn't that we, they need to do something different in low- and middle-income countries, that we need to have a partnership and work together. So why don't you take listeners through what that partnership might look like? 
Uh, yeah, so I guess the the main take home message from our paper is uh, the concept of co-development. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the argument we make is high income countries and low income countries should not work as islands, uh, but we should work together because there are many areas of common interest. Uh, there are there are and we even have uh, a couple of diagrams exploring some of the areas of common interest that we can work on together, low and middle income countries and high income countries. Uh, you know, if we find a cost effective intervention, then that's that, that, that's a that's a benefit for high income countries as well, because uh, financial toxicity, high cost of cancer treatment has become a huge burden for high income countries mm-hmm. as well. It's not only a problem of low and middle income countries, um, but those creative uh, solutions to expensive treatments uh, that usually come to clinicians who are working in a, in a resource-limited setting. Uh, we have a couple of uh, beautiful examples, not exactly from oncology, but, you know, uh, for example, uh, uh, in low and middle-income countries, they, they discovered that you could use uh, sari cloth to filter water, and that could help uh, in, in preventing transmission of cholera. Hmm. So The silk uh, of a know, sari. Yeah, even if you don't have those high-class filters mm-hmm. to filter water, mm-hmm. you could use a simple sari cloth. Yeah. And this is an intervention that can be implemented in Africa, in South America, in low income countries, like tomorrow. Like, it doesn't need any, any high-tech. And uh, people were developing a paper-based microscope uh, called Falscope. Uh, and there are, there are plenty of examples uh, uh, like that. Uh, so, uh, you know, our main message is that uh, the the statistical expertise, the technological expertise, uh, the scientific uh, expertise of high-income countries, if we can combine that with the patient need, with the uh, huge patient resource that we have in low and middle-income countries, uh, and uh, these new, some uh, creative solutions to these problems, and if we, if we can work together, then I think it will be a great... Uh, uh, help for the entire global oncology community. Um, you know, um, uh, I think we, we talk about a couple of aspirin trials in our papers mm-hmm. uh, as an example of co-development trials. And uh, in one of those trials, the the rationale for expanding the trial to low and middle income countries uh, has been written as uh, early recruitment. Mm-hmm. You know, there are, there are a number of cancers that are that are very common in low and middle income countries, but are not as common in high income countries. Right. Um, so there is, and the other 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 thing about low and middle income countries is there are one or two cancer centers in the whole country. So most of the cancer patients come to those cancer centers, uh, and so even rare cancers are not that rare in those cancer centers. I see. It's catching the whole huge referral population. base. Yeah, yeah, I see. So overall, I think you know. We, this is such a this is such a well done paper. There's so many good points here. We've pulled out just a few in this brief discussion. But I guess listeners will have to you know they have to read the whole paper. Challenges and opportunities for cancer clinical trials in low and middle income countries. Is there is there one more thing that you want to highlight before we before we go? I know our time is so limited today. Uh, a last thought that you haven't talked about. I mean, I think we've hit on some of the major points of this this article, but there's there's also a lot there that we we didn't have a chance to get to. 
Yeah, so I guess uh, uh, there, are, there are a couple of points. One for uh, researchers in high-income countries, uh, this is a point that we have already made. We should not just dismiss the research that comes from low-income right. countries. We should not. Uh, we should be open to data coming from low-income countries, and we right. should be looking whenever we are trying to do any research. We should we should always think: Is this an opportunity to to co-development? Is can we include uh, low-income countries colleagues in this? Uh, can we translate? Okay, can we expand this trial so that it will have global implications? And the second is the message for colleagues in low-income countries that uh, yeah, you know, the important thing is to uh, like. I guess it's a question of prioritization. Instead of uh, feeling, I have I have seen some of my colleagues in low-income countries who feel sad that, uh, just for example. Uh, uh, gynecological oncologist in in Nepal. Sometimes they feel sad that we don't have access to to Avastin uh, mm-hmm. uh, to treat cervical cancer, mm-hmm. metastatic cervical cancer in Nepal. But uh, the priority for us should be to ask our government to uh, to fund for uh, cervical cancer screening or vaccinations mm-hmm. rather than mm-hmm. right. rather than, uh, um, rather than uh, Avastin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, instead of uh, trying to catch up with high income countries, like in low income countries nowadays, we see that. Uh, we, we, we even in some low income countries they are investing on proton therapies now really uh, hmm. yeah um, they want to have ngs they want to have all those new technologies but uh, colleagues in low income countries I, I i want to uh, make a suggestion that we should uh, focus on our priorities uh, because there are a lot of opportunities that if we don't uh, act on them it's not going to happen from from high income countries there are there are certain things that only we can do mm-hmm. only colleagues in low income countries can do those ideas can come only for colleagues who are practicing in a resource limited setting. So I guess we should fix our priorities and our priorities should be to to uh, trial or test cheaper interventions, cost-effective interventions, uh, rather than just uh, catching up with high-income countries that are participating in those uh, trials of new fancy drugs that nobody will have access to after uh, the trial is completed. So we should uh, focus on doing those pragmatic trials and uh, I understand that there will be a lot of limitations in terms of the research expertise, the infrastructure, and things like that. So in those cases, collaborating with high-income countries for those global trials will uh, be an avenue in which we can learn how to do research, and uh, that will also help us to expand the research infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And we can leverage that infrastructure to conduct future pragmatic trials mm-hmm. of uh, our own need or of, or of importance to us. And this is, uh, uh, you know, uh, like uh, when uh, HIV AIDS uh, trials were being done in low income countries, that uh, that has taught us some lesson that uh, that uh, taught many uh, researchers in low income countries about how to do research. And and that also helped to build infrastructure for, for doing research. And now we can make use of similar uh, infrastructure. Uh, we can make use of that research expertise. So I guess um, uh, we, we have to focus more on research capacity building in low-income countries and and try to address the research questions that are actually important to us rather than investing and answering research questions that are applicable only in high-income setting. That's very well put. Uh, The paper's out now, Nature Cancer. It's a comment on challenges and opportunities in low- and middle-income countries. Bishal, it's a pleasure to have you on for the fourth time now. I hope to have you on again in the future. Yeah, me too. It's it's uh, plenary session podcast feels like home. Sometimes it feels like I'm the host. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to get back up in Kingston sometime and turn the tables. But it's great to see you. 
Yeah, definitely. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.